0: All right, we're kicking off Digital Wildcatters. First of all, I want to say that we have a birthday among one of our founders. It's his birthday tomorrow. Our, our founders? <laughs> are,
1: we, are we employees? BD, BDE founders or? No, no,
0: no, no. Digital Wildcatters founder. It's Frax Slap's birthday tomorrow.
2: Yeah. Or, yeah. He he bailed on us and decided to go on a trip to New York instead.
0: Is he doing it for personal reasons or is it business? I have no
2: clue why they're up there, to be honest with you. All
0: right, I have a bone to pick. As Houstonians, a Houstonian bone to pick. (laughs) There's a lot of those. Why is the Tennessee Titans showing up in Oilers uniforms? Man, that
2: pisses me off so much every single time.
0: It makes me so mad. I mean, it's worse than the Downhorns for me.
2: I mean, yeah, so I was born here, and and when we left – when we when we left and when i was in elementary school we moved to memphis with the titans who wow. became the yeah or the oilers. First. they were the tennessee oilers their first yes. year while they were building the stadium and they played in memphis liberty and, bowl yep they played in the liberty bowl that had no business hosting and still doesn't an nfl team but uh and then they you know finally moved to nashville and stuff and it's like i've never like it's purely out of spite that they that the owner held on to those rights and all of that stuff and continues to to sit on them. In my so, opinion, I mean, there's business at that as well, right? Like all the licensing that comes with the Oilers stuff, right. be, so, and I guarantee you, Oilers stuff probably sells just as well as the Titan stuff and the Texan stuff does by itself, just because of. So I,
1: I'm old enough to remember <laughs> at the end of the Oilers era in Houston. You remember the canceled preseason game because no. the Astrodome turf was so bad. <laughs> They they literally stopped a game in the middle and, and canceled the, the <laughs> remainder of the game. <laughs> but brutal. I will say, I almost tweeted out last night, for those of you on DirecTV, you're not able to get CBS, CBS because yeah. they're having an <laughs> they're- ongoing dispute with <laughs> Tecna. So not only did the iconic Oilers not make an appearance, of course, you can see it streaming on Paramount Plus, but that Paramount Plus, oh, you got to have Paramount Plus with the Showtime package. Mm-hmm. No, thanks missed willie nelson's 90th birthday broadcast as well yes so two texas icons yesterday were broadcast on cbs and got to see neither of them
0: well i think there's a couple things that we learned yesterday
2: i mean directly what did we learn texas we learned that
0: if you show up (laughs) if you show up and play the texans with oilers outfits you're gonna lose that
1: was delicious. It was.
0: And secondly, if you're going to throw the downhorns against the Lady Longhorns, they're going to beat you. They're going to sweep you. So, congratulations <laughs> to the <laughs> University of Texas Lady Longhorns who won the national championship. Can't you in just volleyball. be
1: happy with being in the CFP? I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, as someone said, a buddy of mine said to me, he says, "Hey, you know, take take this victory lap while you can because you'll be the next next ten years will be." um 10 years of six and five seasons and in, in the sec i well, like, one, one last problem. funny thing
1: in the oilers saga or the the rights jj mm-hmm. watt tweeted out yesterday um we win we get it back <laughs> yeah. those are the rules <laughs> sorry not sorry <laughs> they should do
2: that well we I got was, some
0: real energy news now i think stuff's going on
1: a lot of stuff's going on
0: what do you want to kick off with mark What's bothering you the most about the world of energy?
1: Uh, It's not bothering, it's just kind of geopolitical reality. And I think the the biggest headline related to it is BP announcing they are ceasing Hmm. tanker traffic through the Red Sea, which has become somewhat of a problem area for both uh, tankers and container ships with the Houthis being aggressive and essentially hijacking uh, container ships and harassing traffic in that area it's becoming has become a pretty significant security situation just a quick reminder the houthis are the yemen-based rebel group aligned with iran mostly shia although the the organizational and the population structure is a lot more complex Uh, they've been together and a bit of a burr in in yemen and saudi arabia's side since the early mid '90s. If you recall some of the drone attacks in Saudi Arabia, damage to facilities, et cetera. So BP is, I think, the first uh, crude oil shipper, crude and product shipper to announce that they're going to not traverse the Red Sea. They will monitor it and then um, adjust accordingly. Crude's up a couple of bucks this morning to WTI's almost 74 last I looked. So just some numbers on what it means for the amount of maritime uh, crude natural gas traffic in the form of lng it's about 12 percent of global maritime crude transport and about eight percent of global lng a lot of which is going to north america and europe that's significant i mean as we (laughs)
0: said we're on the verge if if this winter actually becomes cold af a lot of people are screwed
2: yeah i mean the geopolitical stuff is it's just one of those unknowns that no one thinks about until it's there. And you're like, Oh shit, we can't <laughs> ship crude. Cause well, that, I mean, that significantly changes routes if people stop going through there, right? Like,
1: yeah. I forget who it was announced that they were, I guess they had gotten approval to peel off and go around, um, the Cape, um, Southern part of, uh, of Africa. So I think like with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and, global crude movements we'll, we will see some adjustment you were talking about it or conjecturing earlier about you know do some of the do some of the private players take up the slack and figure out ways to maneuver traffic through that area to make, take up the slack it's just it doesn't adjust overnight yeah i mean
0: i was reading this article this morning about gunver and how they anticipated that russia was going to invade ukraine and they had some long term contracts um for for lng that were a lot cheaper than if if gas prices spiked so they figured out well shit, we need to get out from underneath these contracts who do we screw first so they actually cut off supply to pakistan and what was five shipments um equated about 200 million dollars worth of natural gas lng well, they turned around and sold it for six hundred million, so that covers their legal fees. Because Pakistan's pissed. But what's interesting is, I was playing golf yesterday with a uh, um, a guy that works for one of these Swiss-based commodities firms. He's one of their sort of top traders. They love the sh- volatility. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, it's interesting in in a world where we're like, man, this is a big news about BP stopping um shipments around um through the red sea these these uh
1: private commodity traders they love this shit Mm -hmm. so if putting in a bit of a plug for javier blas with bloomberg wrote co-wrote a book called the world for sale and it's about all about the the world of commodity trading and the really the the personality of exactly what you were just talking about let's just say it's an intrepid bunch that, well, has, that has a different risk calculus than-
0: I would have to say that it was some of the uh, corporate pros versus the Joes yesterday. It was me and another guy. We're the pros, you know, cause we're our handicaps and we played these guys. One of them on the other side was this trader, not as good of a golfer, but when it came time for pressure and there was some cash, <laughs> a lot of cash, totally deadly. Ice. I was so <laughs> upset, but I was like, of course. Yeah. You know, it's a 210 uh 10-yard par 3. He stripes it to 3 feet. I'm like, that's impossible unless you're really good at handling stress and pressure like this.
2: Yeah, no, I mean the uh I think the crazy part I watched the I took a commodities trading class when I was getting my masters, so I started watching just US-based commodities mostly then, but uh you know, the crazy part about commodities trading is a lot of the actual, I think my professor even said this, it's like something like 90% of the contracts never get filled, even though, which is like incredibly ironic considering the fact that they opened up global commodity trading so that you would have a true world market and for people actually trading the commodity. And now it's gone back the other way to where, okay, well, there's no single person that controls the price or the supply of something, but the algorithms and the the traders can control the volatility or you know you've got these like waterfall effects when it starts going up or down regardless of even what commodity it is really right like they just trigger those kind of like oh shit, you've got all this automatic trading happening and then prices just fall for no reason
0: something happens it changes prices are going to spike long-term contracts become negotiation points right
2: right yeah, but I
0: mean, it, it's it's actually hard to make quite, money
2: without volatility.
1: A lot of times, volatility. too, you need volatility.
0: You need it, and we have a lot of. Well, it even the lot
1: equity lot. side of it, it's been described now by someone who's been in it a long time, Arjun Murty. He, he doesn't talk about the super cycle. He talks about super vol, and I think that is the the appropriate way to think about the yeah. the backdrop of all this that's commodity related, both on the commodity and the equity side. So, in others matters, in other matters, crude. On the flip side, Goldman took down its 2024 Brent forecast by about 10 bucks, which is not trivial on a prior kind of point forecast for 2024 of 92. They're now saying 80 to 81 is is the average with a range of 70 to 90. And that headline in Reuters was on the basis of what we've been talking about here lately, and that is surprising to the upside is U.S. production now expecting – growth of around 900,000 barrels a day, a number that's, I think, been out there a while, but they, I guess, made it official. Yeah. And so I just find it interesting that this coincides with we've got a little upset going on geopolitically, which is actually doing what geopolitical events used to do, which is drive crude higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, they do say in that note that they do not expect, in fact, they expect Saudis to hold... Um, the The base level of cuts through 2025, and these additional cuts through at least the uh fourth quarter of this year. So, don't expect the Saudis to flush the market.
0: So basically, what you're saying is, with all the volatility going on, you've still got Russia-Ukraine. You've got Ye- the Yemen Yemenis, Yemenis, Yemenians, Yemenis, Yemenis, Yemeni, creating some stress. You would think prices go up, but prices are now forecasted to go down. Now, this is Goldman Sachs. Could, others could think otherwise because US is stepping up production.
1: Well, that's, you know, we're, we're seeing kind of an organic creep mm-hmm. if, if in US production because there is no explicit coordination. It's just right. a concerted effort by dozens and dozens and dozens <clears throat> of players in the US market, high grading doing better, uh, more efficient job of drilling completion, and we're seeing
2: the, the effects of that, how long that lasts. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Do you know, like, of that new projected or current crude, how much of that is onshore, offshore, unconventional versus conventional by any chance? I think it's predominantly
1: unconventional, but I don't, I don't recall or have not seen that, yeah. that breakdown. It's predominantly unconventional and predominantly Permian.
2: I'd be curious to just bring that up just because I'd be curious to see what some of the major players do with, you know, a lot of their bigger offshore stuff. Now that prices seem to kind of have a pseudo floor here in that 70 to 80 range.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing other pressure points to the upside in terms of production growth that are that are routinely sided along with with U.S. production growth in, in uh, both Guyana and Brazil. So if we if we've put a. Seventy dollar floor. Mm -hmm. under crude does that change the long term right because those are long cycle by -hmm. definition it remains to be seen i think both chevron or particularly exxon and others taking on more short cycle gives them a bit more of a toggle capex year to capex year i mean i'm
0: thinking about leasing some dirt in the permian what do you think
2: you and everybody else <laughs> yeah. am i late got, <laughs> maybe <laughs> am got, I the, late? got 30 billion you can just buy it i was gonna say oh, i could do that be perfect time for a major i'm department. an entrepreneur
0: i want to do everything myself you know
1: <laughs> so let's let's hmm. stay on fossil fuels and hydrocarbons and this was actually nailed down and signed after last week's show and we don't want to spend too much more time on it but cop 28 ended with i believe 196 countries agreeing to the language uh, really essentially, and and this is the stock take relative to the 2015 um, seminal COP. Can't do the arithmetic to figure out which one that was, (laughs) but the language is stopping short of a phase out of fossil fuels, talking about an equitable and just transition from fossil fuels. And we also got the, things like the tripling of renewables, you know, I guess a successful outcome is when nobody's happy. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the definition of this, but there, there's just a lot, a lot of, a lot of non-specific language left to interpretation. And and so just wanted to button that up in terms of what actually was Mm -hmm. the
2: closing note of, of COP 28. So, do You feel like that's a, just generally speaking, do you feel like it's almost like they've taken their foot off the pedal a little bit because they didn't explicitly define it? Or do you think that this is still kind of in that same, like do you think people are pulling back a little bit after the last couple of years on this speed to transition mentality? <clears throat> I,
1: I think, um, as, as we, Summarized with Dan Pickering's tweet <clears throat> last week, everybody just goes back, and you know not much changes and mm-hmm. so if you look at if you look at what is happening in political outcomes here recently, I do think that there is some merit to the notion that at least in the West, certain election outcomes and the prospect of more of the same meaning moving a little more slowly mm-hmm. or maybe walking back some of the accelerated timeline, if not outright undoing some of the transition mandates and policies. I, I do think that there is an element of that. I, I think, <clears throat> I think algebra had to, I don't know if save a little face is the right yeah. term, but they, they needed to, to come out with something consequential mm-hmm. and explicit as it relates to fossil fuels, but you know, I both know, and maybe it's cynicism, maybe it's reality or a combination of both. And those two usually intersect. Um, there's a lot of maneuverability. I here. mean, yeah.
0: the reality is this, I think people aren't, people are starving and, and people are in massive debt. I mean, today uh, it just broke that British consumer energy debt hits a record 3 billion pounds like British consumers can't That's consumer
2: consumer debt.
0: Consumer debt. Yeah. They <laughs> cannot crazy. afford their bills, their energy bills at home. And why is that? Because the UK has been on this massive terror to build out renewables at the expense of costs and people are saying, "Wait, I can't afford it." So, it's actually the utilities, the retailers holding all this debt because people can't pay. And that's happening around the world. Yeah. So I, I'm like, at the end of the day, something's got to go. Do I want clean versus I want to have be able to have food on the table? People are going to pick food every single time,
2: and they have, and, and they yeah. are. Well, I mean, and it, it compounds too. Really, like everyone, everyone thinks about inflation around you know groceries and your. Average stuff, but then it's like, hey, but then the materials for the house that you're trying to build go up, and the cost to transport all of those things go like everything is affected at the root of it, pretty much by the cost of energy at the whole, right? Like, because you've got to move the stuff from A to B, you've got to move the materials, you've got to move all the groceries. All I mean, I was stuff.
0: at an appointment this morning, I was asking uh, one of the nurses about, you know, what are you doing for Christmas? Have you done your shopping? And two nurses both said, one said, um, well, the my Christmas presents this year is me. Like I'm not buying presents. Mm-hmm. And another one's like, man, we were trying not to do a big Christmas this year. But the overall tone was pretty like pretty bleak. People aren't feeling great about the economy. They they we all know it. So who who cares about COP28 right now? Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the the environmentalists are taking a, are going to have to take a backseat, and they are because there's too much momentum against them right now,
1: so I think the acceleration side of this whole um, gathering, the other part of the agreement or the other agreement coming out that was heralded, was a tripling of renewables
2: and <laughs> all that that entails. China signed that one too'm very curious as they have all their nuclear plants being and yeah. nuke and coal plants being built
1: there there was a <clears throat> a thread and we'll post it um that was actually reposted really the only reason i I don't follow this this person who tweeted it but was talking about um not only what it means to replace 61 percent of electric power that is (laughs) fossil, fossil fuel Fossil fuel based. But what about the installed base of renewables today, wind and solar? And if you put 25 and 30 year lives on those respectively, wind 25, solar 30, then by 2050, a significant chunk, if not the majority, close to all of it, under those assumptions in a renewable, the renewable, the current renewable segment will have to undergo replacement. <laughs> And then tripling on top of that implies just to replace hydrocarbons. So the 61%. So I'm Mm -hmm. maybe back and forth between tripling, and I guess that would effectively be a tripling to get to that 61% of the electricity pie. The estimate is at at current manufacturing capacity and supply chain situation, it would take 67 years of manufacturing.
0: I mean, I think you know when you put when you put all the sort of dots together, and COVID drove drove this in a, in a massive way. You see large corporations moving from very expensive states with very expensive energy to very cheap states with very inexpensive energy. I don't think this is going to last. I mean, you just can't artificially promote. A business, um, <laughs> at some point, if it doesn't make money, people are going to say, wait a minute, this just doesn't make sense. And I, that's what we're, I think we're seeing is there is a place for renewables. It's happening, but it's not going to happen at this pace and the speed that everyone wants it to happen because it just doesn't make any economic sense. So, so
1: this goes to the, the kind of the fundamental, what do they want? Is it actually a reduction mm-hmm. of emissions or an elimination of fossil fuels? Yeah. Is it? Wow. renewables defined as wind and solar because they're low carbon or is it low carbon? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this, <clears throat> I personally think we've talked about this before as well. I think this just uh, is it going to be a growing catalyst that's really starts to move nuclear
2: forward. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> I was talking to uh, Ryan Rice actually the other day and we were talking about it and uh, I was like, saying something to the effect of yeah until you know they realize that nuclear is the best option (laughs) it's cheaper it's way safer than anyone actually thinks it is and it's been around for decades and if we wanted to actually do that nuclear makes a ton of sense um but nobody you know everyone thinks worst case scenario in nuclear even though that has literally like the worst possible case scenarios recently at least closer to the states weren't like there were no deaths, there were no individuals that died from Fukushima. There were, n- and it was a natural disaster that they designed for, and it still didn't, you know, and, and, blow up. And Japan
1: right? is scrambling to restart a bunch <laughs> of nuclear. <laughs> right. Why? Because it's getting cheaper base energy. Well, they're, load energy yeah. well, they're yeah, heavily dependent upon, on on um, gas imports from Russia. Yeah. Um. There was a good piece out on Dimberg recently talking about. You know this this notion of you know how do you how do you hurt it, it was a little along those lines is as, as the way I read it how do you hurt a, a bad actor like Russia you don't you don't impair the market or constrict the market you allow the market to flood right with those commodities because what the Russians depend on more than anything right now for their economic well-being, and things are actually pretty good domestically mm-hmm. in Russia. They're generating a lot more revenue because prices are relatively elevated. Whereas, yep. you know, if we let, yeah, if the Saudis flooded the market, OPEC didn't didn't have its discipline, then we're looking at crude prices that are much lower.
0: Well, I think not only, I mean, we we're passing around an article, a couple articles that we've been talking about. We're going to wait for Chuck and maybe Frack Slack to talk through it in detail, it's not only supply from other places, but if Russia gets these pipelines built, to get more into Europe, I mean, there could be some serious issues in terms of just global, sort of the global power dominance changes. Yeah, And Russia has the capability. I know the US, we've been against it for a long time because once Russia gets pipelines, our LNG business in Europe is gonna dry up. We have less influence. It's a, it's a, we're, we're on a really interesting sort of political slash energy path that we need to probably unpack more.
1: We in the U.S. and more broadly yeah. in North America have, have the gas potential to really, really play geopolitical strategic offense and be the supplier of we choice do, that
0: displaces-
1: But we're not doing that. Right. That's the fear, I think, that's driving- <clears throat> A lot of the pseudo-NATO or NATO-adjacent, kind of the buffer between Russia and the NATO states is, you know, do we allow the resumption or traversing of new natural gas supplies in the Arctic LNG Mm -hmm. on the Siberian coast and, and Russia, do we allow those things to essentially come out and take market share?
2: Yeah right well so, i mean even with all the you know policies in place to block russian oil and stuff right you look at what they've kind of done right like so ironically their output to azerbaijan went up and azerbaijan's output went up but russia isn't smuggling <laughs> their their resources through baku and like. They find ways to get it on the market. They have people who are willing to do it that. Look to, right? the,
0: like, look to Switzerland for that. Yeah, right. It, yeah, it, if the there's money. a follow the money.
1: If there's anything that's close to permanently cheap, and I I borrowed those that term from Steve, the late great Steve Chazen, who said years ago at a conference in a kickoff as to why he was still running Oxy at the time, as to why. Oxy was so bullish on Gulf Coast Petkin and Steve in his usual kind of dry genius said, we just love permanently cheap natural gas. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. It is it is something that provides, uh, I think, unparalleled energy density at value. Now that we've gotten most of the transport, right. it's, it's still not as easy to transport as coal or fuel oil and and crude oil but you essentially have half the co2 signature of of coal all things equal and the track record that we've achieved over the last 15 to 20 years i don't know eqt talks a lot about this is the replacement and retirement of coal in favor of natural gas that substitution has made a real absolute impact
2: yeah that's the crazy part is you can clearly look at you know the the co2 emissions from the u.s over the years you can look at it right on top of natural gas uh production oil production and the gdp too because that's another thing right like emissions can go down if the gdp goes down because the economy isn't growing and you know, right, people aren't right. doing as much What happened we, during COVID? but we did that like the economy grew over the last 10 20 years very you know heartily and pregnant generally speaking, energy prices were relatively low here in the U.S. And we reduced our carbon emissions because we moved away from coal. It's like how like the power of that is still not talked about, in my opinion, a lot uh, nationally or internationally because they don't want that narrative to get out.
1: Right? And, like, and I think uniquely, and hopefully I'm not speaking out of uh, turn from a an understanding geologically or from a reservoir standpoint, but just putting some numbers out there, the world is at 377 BCF a day. The U.S. produces over 100 now. 17 BCF a day that comes from the Permian in the form of associated gas. Yeah, associated which gas. Is associated. A, yeah, which is literally right. free. Yeah. Amazing. Or, or, or a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And if that mm-hmm. is not a, um, a quiver full of arrows, I, I'm not sure what is. Yeah.
0: I think once the U.S. realizes that only oil and gas can produce pickleball equipment
2: (laughs) that's gonna change everything i mean i do think genuinely though like and we've seen it here you know in houston even but you start you know forcing one higher energy costs on people and then two less reliability and we have another winter like that again. Like people are going to lose their shit, and that's not just you know in um, Texas we can blame ERCOT right because we have that. Literally but outside of Texas, when you're on the national grid and stuff, like when that starts happening more and more in areas that that hasn't happened to it in it's the happening. past, I right? Mean, like
0: we see it in in, in California. That's going to be I mean, the it's big, happening.
1: Yeah,
2: I'm going to stay on the Miso Island. <laughs> I mean, the, the southern part of Miso is still. I mean, there, there's a lot of talk about wood.
0: balkanization. It's happening, but it's just happening in its organic way. Yeah,
2: But I mean, the, the fastest way to get people off of that mindset is for them to have to, to go through a- Hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Go through a few days you, without power. You tend to reflect on winter. those
1: things when you go to the ballot box too, standing <laughs> yeah. there by yourself in the quiet.
0: True, true.
1: All right, Kirk.
0: I mean, news not as exciting. Interesting for me. Octopus Energy just raised $800 million. Who's Octopus, some of you in Texas might actually have Octopus Energy as your retailer. They're a British based retailer. They're actually, I don't know, 10 years old or very young, but they solved a problem that I've been talking about. They created a software, it's called Kraken, that is an integrated modern software package. Now, Octopus is the second largest retailer in the UK but they've had an interesting strategy. They've been actually raising equity from other retailers. They came to Shell, we looked at (laughs) the deal, but their whole idea is quid pro quo. I'm gonna license you Kraken, you use my software, you give us some equity to help us grow. They're now about an $8 billion company. Um, they have the Japanese, they have the Canadians, they have a lot of money, but they have global money. And they're in, you're in uh, I don't know, three or four countries in Europe, they're in the US now. They bought a small retailer in Austin and now it's called Octopus Energy here in Texas. But um, there's someone to, to, to watch out for because if there's a model of sort of trying to make uh, retail electricity actually profitable, um, the only real way to do it is to to drop the cost down to almost zero, and to do that you need you need software that's actually yeah really good at analyzing where to get where to get your energy trading and making the right hedges and then being able to help your customers hedge and use energy effectively and wisely you know cut power when you know mm-hmm. there's maybe uh events et cetera um but I'm pretty bullish on octopus. Interesting that they raise more money. They're just sort of taking over the world. Yeah. In a market that almost most retailers don't know how to play.
2: Yeah. No, I mean the that infrastructure grid side, I feel like, is one of those areas too where there's just so much opportunity for disruption, especially around like connected and distributed loads and all of that stuff. Because, you know, there was uh I know Colin talks had uh, talked about it a bunch, but like gritty was a yeah. Retailer here, where you could buy wholesale every fifteen minutes, right? And whether people realize that or not, and the implications of that or not is one thing, but you know the idea of that, like you have the Bitcoin miners on the grid that get paid to turn off and you right. know, allow people to redirect their baseload. Well, you know my Honeywell app asked me when you know ERCOT's putting out their stuff. Hey, do you want to you know sign up for the program where they can control when I get my stuff bumped up or down? it's like well give me some incentive for me to let you do Absolutely. that right like am i going to get a discount am i going to get you know a discount on my rate am i going to get quoted you know the the amount that i didn't use back to me and added to my bill so that i get some kind of net benefit to that otherwise no one is going to do that right and so like there's so many things like that where it's like the simplicity of just having you know, understanding user behavior and incentives right. and having the technology to bring along with that and saying like, hey guys, we now have this whole thing set up and we'll also pay you the consumer X cents per kilowatt hour that you don't use during this time period or something My like
0: retail that. startup was called, and we didn't we didn't actually raise the money we needed. It was called Blackbeard, you know, like, and it wasn't stealing from the, it wasn't the idea of like stealing, it was re- Blackbeard more than Robinhood, but it's, the idea was really like, let's take, from the grid and, and distribute it in a more equitable way, mm-hmm. but in a, in a um, capitalistic way. Yeah. The thing about Go Gritty that I always struggled with was they were putting the risk. They, they actually gave you the risk right. as, the, as the consumer, and that's where they, I was like, that model just doesn't work in a market like ERCOT. That's now, New Zealand, there was a company that, um, and I'm blanking on the name, they actually did the same thing as Gritty. They were the model and they worked, but they worked in a small market right. where they have uh, hydropower to, there's sort of no, you know, $12,000 a <laughs> megawatt hour <laughs> Not the volatility. problem yeah. in New Zealand. Um, but it's interesting. I think um, it, Octopus is someone to watch. I don't yeah. know what their prices are, um, but um, interesting, interesting development. What else we got in the world?
1: We I have- <clears throat> We have a revisit of the Venezuela Guyana issue, mainly for the sake of corrections. And thank you to our subject matter expert for pointing out some mistakes that we made. Our listeners. Our listeners. I mean, thank you. Fundamentally, um, yeah, this is a person who has a lot of expertise in the area and a lot of historical knowledge. And I think I misspoke and said that the dispute was originally in the 1800s between the Venezuelans and the French, but Guyana was a British territory, British Guiana. Venezuela gained its independence in 1830, which set up um, the British commissioning a German naturalist to establish the borders. And basically the outcome of that was to establish the western border of British Guiana at that time, as the Orinoco River on the eastern border of what is today Venezuela, the territory between, and Venezuela protested that, the territory between uh, the Orinoco River on the west and the Esquibo River, which really runs through the the eastern, d- kind of divides the eastern third of present-day Guyana, was under agreement not to be colonized by either uh, the British or Venezuela, gold was discovered there later on, the Mon- Monroe Doctrine was inv- invoked, and then you have an enforcement of the, the <clears> western <throat> uh, the western boundary of, of British Guiana as the Orinoco River. Well, now we've got a significant parallel to that going on with uh, discovery in what would be territorial waters of the mm-hmm. disputed area according to Venezuela in the form of the Staybrook block and then the other, you know, the other discoveries that have been made. A lot of, you know, different theories and opinions out there on who lines up with whom. Uh, But, uh, you know, Chevron is now in the Staybrook block. They've had a long history with the heavy oil development and the benefits of all that. Uh, With respect to Venezuela, how that plays out in terms of political dynamics, um, I think more recently parties are on record saying we don't want, we don't want uh,
2: uh,
1: military action. We don't, you know, we we want to resolve this diplomatically. Don't know where Suriname stands because I think, you know, in, in one piece that I saw out there, I forget what the source was, conjecturing that maybe they have something to gain even more if, you know, if they ally with the side of the Venezuelans. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what they have done. It's right. just, it's a fairly an increasingly complex issue but just wanted to clarify some of those particularly historical um errors that that i made on on the last show
0: well finally i've I've been listening to a, a podcast i'm not finished with it by david blackman um he interviewed uh megan lapp fisheries liaison for seafree shoreside they are a fishing company mainly off atlantic some gulf of mexico and really about the lawsuits that they're, they're, they're suing both on the federal and state level about all these wind farms that have been green-lighted uh, by the Biden administration. Um, what's interesting is for over 40 years, NOAA, um, which sort of manages the leases, has said seismic, just seismic um, surveying is way too difficult on marine life and and uh there's a i've seen a few which is kind of amazing um in nantucket but the uh north atlantic right whale is endangered and the endangered species act sort of trumps everything but didn't realize this that that seismic surveying uh temporarily deafens uh whales construction permanently can deafen whales and so That's why oil and gas has had like you can't do any surveying off North Atlantic. It's been forty years, but now they're sort of green lighting.
2: Now they're out there surveying for what's the difference between
1: the impact of, you know, why why is seismic temporary and and construction? I, I don't
0: know, but but actually the surveying for wind. Just to to be clear, the surveying for wind is actually not as harmful as for oil and gas. I think the charges aren't as big, maybe.
2: Um, Probably trying to map subsurface for right more subsurface for oil and gas than for wind. But what's
0: interesting is yeah, it's depth. Yeah, what's interesting is is it, the podcast is interesting because it goes on to quite a few issues. But one is um, if you work for the federal government that oversees these leases, you have a history of getting good jobs with the wind wind companies. But secondly, is they they're pretty much ignoring. They're doing seismic surveys anyway. Because the federal government says you, you can, and they're ignoring the fact that they have these sort of rules around like if there's a whale in the vicinity, you can't be serving or you can't do construction. But the way to find the whales, they have sightseers, and they're like, we'll do, we'll look an hour a day. And right whales are actually pretty quiet. You don't like, so they're yeah. not very commutative. So you have to be serving like 24 hours a day with subsonic uh, sound systems and you can pick them up, but there's they're choosing not to do that. And that's why we've seen a lot of these whales, um, you know, show up on the shores dead. Um, cause it's killing, it's killing these whales, but it's interesting because it, it further goes, there's been some debate. We've talked about this before on the show about how these whales are dying and, and, and people are saying, wait, it's not the wind farms. We know it's not, and according to Megan on this, on this podcast, she is saying that a lot of the people in charge of running these um, studies for the government have actually been hired by the wind industry. So they somehow the, the study results come out in favor of, of course, it has nothing to do with wind, but it's interesting development.
2: Taking a, a play out of the big pharma playbook. It's like, oh, hey you do this for us then you can come get a job for us after the and
0: that happens in oil and gas i mean there's quite a few oil and gas engineers that have gone to the railroad commission Mm -hmm. but not at the same level so it's we're not seeing this level of um you know uh
2: cronyism um, i mean could you imagine if it was an oil and gas company though that was not today no way yeah like the uh and then the i the irony of all of it too is you know chuck's got his his uh Big spiel on how whales are huge carbon sinks and we need more whales. And so it's like we oh, need more the whales. irony of renewables <laughs> killing whales that is also now. She also said
0: there's like one right whale in like the Gulf of Mexico. Like the Gulf of Mexico has very few whales and Marine I didn't realize. Mammals. That. Marine mammals. Thank you. But <laughs> but the North Atlantic's like the super highway. Yeah. They're everywhere. And That's we're killing them all. And I care about that.
1: For when. That's the best. It's too part. bad for wind. As a lover of the ocean and ocean activities.
0: As a surfer, I love the ocean and I don't want to see big uh, you know, <laughs> ceiling fans that are creepy. You ever been in, in, in mm-hmm. West Texas and seen all those wind farms? It is scary. Look,
1: I drove around Germany, France, and Holland this summer and it just you feel good though. I, don't you? I hadn't driven around that part of the world in twenty plus years. And now seeing that everywhere in the countryside and just you know the sight lines as you're driving it's
2: just you know kind of jars you a little bit when you first see it yeah every time we drive by them i make sure to take pictures of all the oil leaking down from the the nacelles because it's (laughs) guaranteed (laughs) fine on every single one and you're like hey guys if you're so green uh i've got one that i'll throw in here that caught eft's attention this weekend but the uh battalion oil corp announced on the 15th that it had plans to enter agreement, uh, to merge with fury resources. It's I think a hundred percent stock merger, 450 million, uh, in value. But the, uh, the part that, that really made everybody really excited was, uh, by offering the ability to drill locations with higher H2S volumes, this joint venture will allow the company to exploit additional drilling and acquisition opportunities, which may not be available to others in the region. So I'm very curious as the, uh, as an ex Apache, uh, engineer, what your thoughts are on that statement out in West Texas. that
1: On H2S. Well, first of all, it wasn't, <laughs> was it, was n- never an Apache engineer. Um, your your time at Apache, excuse me. Yeah, I look. I I think <clears throat> I think H two S is is going to continue to be kind of a niche oriented um, play, particularly with you know the levels of production mm-hmm. and, and some of the mainstream areas that aren't as H two S aren't as H two S heavy. You you've got I think quite a bit of of scrutiny already on yeah. just general things like water disposal mm-hmm. methane emissions et cetera, and when we introduce more and more h2s into the equation it it become i i don't expect it to be a kind of a wave of a thing yeah me neither <laughs> I think, although there are technologies out there that have emerged that you know allow on-site treating i can't remember off the top of my head some of the things that that we did see uh when i was um evaluating technologies there um a couple of them were h S related because there were you know there were operators that were one-off that did have some h2s mm-hmm. prone areas and it you know it made sense to try and do that effectively and efficiently on site uh, from a cost perspective and you know boost the economics of, right you know the the more impurities and things that you have to deal with
2: the the higher the mm-hmm. the break-even cost mm-hmm. bar is yeah, yeah. no i th- i thought that was uh Funny to to be in there, like you know, an announcement in the merger and acquisition that that was going to be one of their their knobs that they were going to twist. Uh, I
1: I think what's going to become more widespread in the terms of bad things that come from underground, uh, along with mining and extraction processes, is all the things that we're going to have to deal with with this theoretical explosion in in surface and pit mining that we're going to have right. to undertake. In in addition to and more importantly to that some of the really nasty processes you have to under, undertake to get yeah. purity minerals and metals out of those in some cases uh decreasing ore quality um type mm-hmm. of things so um that's a subject for probably an, another show yeah. or
2: No, for sure a show
1: a show unto itself but we've talked about you know things like the, the nickel processing and refining in Indonesia which is Increasingly toward a process called HPAL, which is high-pressure acid leaching, which introduces sulfuric acid mm-hmm. under high temperatures and pressures, which then require a lot more energy and thermal energy inputs. And mm-hmm. you know a lot of what's being built to support that process or that increase in the proportion of HPAL in the processes of of, of nickel refining is um, is
2: coal-fired generation so yeah i I think it's you know most people would see h2s as like a negative thing and it costs more money because all your pipe has to be special and you have to treat it and then it's also you have to have people under oxygen in most of those situations and like it's just dangerous all around and so finding that in the uh the merger and acquisition announcement as their differentiator eft had a a fun field day with that if you i'm sure my, my first job real
1: job Offshore, I was, when rig count went to near zero, and the green hand got to do (laughs) night company man duty. We were drilling in a a main pass area that was H2S prone. Mm -hmm. And so we had all the monitors, alarms, drills, et cetera. (laughs) And the senior guy that was out there with me decided to let me eat breakfast after I came off you know, it was a luxury to have two company men on a rig because you could actually mm-hmm. split it up into 12-hour right. shifts. So otherwise, you're out there 24-7. You don't know when you're going to sleep. And I was, whatever the deepest part of sleep is, he decided to hold a drill. <laughs> <laughs> and I come scrambling out with Nomex, kind of half on, half off, got my Scott Air Pack on. We all go to the muster point, and we have a workboat tied up. This is Jack jackup. We have a workboat tied up. And all the work boats that were servicing, all the work boats and crew boats that service those rigs had those cascade units with the uh, air bottles mm-hmm. strapped onto the deck, and everybody had hoses and, and masks that they were supposed to. You could hear the alarms right way down on the on the uh, surface of the, of the sea or of the Gulf. Uh, they were tied up and they were fishing. Mm. None of them had their mask on. <laughs> oh, we thought it was a drill. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> H2S goes to the bottom. It mm-hmm. sinks. Yep. It's heavy. Well, what are y'all doing for Christmas, boys? Go first. Uh, a little, little trip to Scottsdale. Oh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Nice and big good weather out there, huh? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, nah, it should be good.
0: Um, how about you? I mean, I think I'm going to pick a fine bourbon, sip it during the holidays. As kids come in, maybe play a little golf.
2: Drink, say, drink some good wine. Golf's gonna be pretty good this next couple of weeks. Good oh, weather. a little hunting as well, but that's after, after In
0: Christmas. Scottsdale? No. <laughs> the only, only hunting in Scottsdale Back here is, is in Texas. uh for, for
2: mountain lions. <laughs> is, is,
0: is for ex wives, but uh
2: hopefully you're not doing that. Mountain lions. Got it. Um we're gonna be we're doing Christmas Eve here with my side of the family and then leaving the day after Christmas to go up to Shreveport to Sweet. spin it with hers, so
0: I was talking. So, one of the nurses I was talking to this morning said, um, she's like, you know, I'm one of the few people that I tell people I don't like the food in Houston. And she's like, people get so mad at me. I'm like, then you must be from, from like South Louisiana. She's like, I am from, (laughs) I am from Baton Rouge, but, but a small town so far south, you wouldn't even be able to pronounce it, pronounce pronounce it. Houston
1: is vastly underrated.
0: I was like, she's like, I love the Mexican the Tex-Mex, love the barbecue, but is there a good Cajun restaurant in Houston? Ooh, I mean, she nailed it. I That's was like, a pretty good question. Boom. Good point.
1: That's a pretty good point.
0: If you're a listener out there, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Belated Hanukkah, Happy Belated Hanukkah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we will be off. For for we might be weeks. off,
0: but if we decide to throw an audible, if something big happens, like the horns win the national championship like they should, we might have to come back and just talk about it. But that's,
1: that's not until January the 8th. Yeah.
0: You'll be back. We'll be back we'll anyway. Be back. That's a good point. Um, but you'll have one season. Now, you might have,
1: to, have to, be to be on on the 1st if you're ambulatory <laughs> after the game on the mm-hmm. 31st if they win to <laughs> handicap. That's true. Handicap, the which the is in New Orleans, um, nonetheless. Oh, we have to give another closing shout out to FrackSlap. Tomorrow's his birthday, so everyone on uh, Twitter, yeah, go blow him up tomorrow. Go blow him up today. When this comes uh, up. Uh, did please the, like did the fundraiser. Subscribe. Closing, uh, giveaway. Yep. Saw that announcement to Yes, to digital wildcatters on Twitter uh,
2: were selected. So fantastic. All right, guys. That's a good way to cap it off. Somebody's getting an extra Merry Christmas from that. So. That's right.
1: Thanks for stepping in, John. Absolutely, man.
2: Anytime. Always.
0: Always welcome on this Makes show. us a lot
1: smarter. That's right. It's a, a <laughs> lie. Definitely a lot younger. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Appreciate it. Cheers. It have a good, You'll Have good a good holiday one. season.